are going to discuss some stuff this morning. Um, so you guys doing okay today or what? Are you awake? Are you alive? Um, now, uh, here's what's interesting, is that today is, of course, Halloween, as you know, but on top of that, we are discussing the concept of hell. Now, I didn't plan that, it just worked out that way. So, coincidence or sovereignty of God, I'm putting my money on the sovereignty of God, okay? But um, but it's true, actually, I didn't plan it, it just worked out that way. I discovered midweek, I was like, wait a second, Sunday is the 31st. That sounds like an important day, well, kind of important. Uh, Halloween, oh yeah, it's Halloween. So uh, so today, uh, we're addressing the question, here's my next, uh, our question um, how can a loving God send people to hell? Now, um, every week we're taking a different question and we're addressing that and hoping to address the doubts of unbelievers, but also the doubts of many believers. And today's question is, how can a, how can a good God, a loving God, send anyone to hell? Because we have to at least admit that on the surface, that appears like a contradiction, right? If God is good and loving and merciful, then how does anybody end up in a place called hell? How is that possible? Uh, one person said this, I doubt the existence of a judgmental God who requires blood to pacify his wrath. Someone had to die before the Christian God would pardon us, but why can't he just forgive? And then there's all those places in the Old Testament where God commands that people be slaughtered. I like that last statement. It's like, oh yeah, that too. All those places where God says, kill all these people. So, there is a great question. We have to admit that that for us, even as believers, this idea of hell is a very difficult belief, is it not? Do you agree with that? Is it a hard belief, this idea of hell? Um, I would say that, that many of you, when I say the word hell, there's an image that pops into your mind, isn't there? Now, what is that image? What's that? Philadelphia. <laughs> Good thing I'm not Tim right now. Uh, what, what pops into your mind when I say that word? Dante's Inferno, right? Someone over here is well read. But for those of us that aren't as well read, uh, what pops into your mind? Okay, fire. What else? What do you picture? What do you picture? What's that? Satan. Okay, what do you picture him looking like? The horns, right? The pitchfork. The pointed tail. He's red. And he's angry. You also picture, I'm sure of it, you also picture a cave where there are stalactites or whatever hanging down, and there's fire everywhere, and there's this devil that looks like a comic book devil that lives there. That's what you picture. Admit it, you all know your mind went there when I said the word hell. That's what image popped into your mind, is it not? Because most of us have, most of us, our view of hell is is influenced by comic books and cartoons more than the Bible, right? Most of you have that picture in mind of hell because that's what you've been, this is the cultural uh, image that you have of hell. And so, um, so hell is a hard belief because it, when you think about it, it does seem like a fairy tale, right? It seems like a comic book or a cartoon when you think about hell, the way it's depicted in those kinds of things. Um, in 2003, there was a survey 
about people, they were asking people if they think they're going to go to heaven or hell, and 64% of people surveyed said they think they're going to heaven. 64%. Only 1% said they might go to hell. Now, it'd be interesting to know if you're the person that's surveying someone and you say, do you think you're going to go to heaven or hell? And the guy's like, I'll probably go to hell. At that point, you kind of move away because you're like, what did you do? You're in the one percentile, buddy. You must have killed somebody, right? But it's true. Most of us as Christians, we even, even as believers, we think of, yeah, hell's for people like Hitler, Saddam Hussein, the really bad people of the world. Right? So it's a very difficult, difficult belief. So your first two questions at your tables to get things going are this. Number one, is it difficult for you to believe in hell? Why or why not? And then secondly, do you have difficulty believing in a God of love, but also a God of anger and wrath? And how, how can he possibly be both of those things? Go ahead and discuss for a few moments. Okay, with these, with these questions, we're going to unpack these a little bit more as this talk unfolds, and you'll have some more discussion here in a minute. But I think we all have to agree, don't we, that it's, it's a hard belief for all of us, is it not? It's hard to believe in hell. Now, I will say this, that if there's someone out there who says, no, hell's an easy belief. Yeah, I I think, I I have no problem with that. I have no, there's nothing in me that goes, wait, what, wait a second, what? There's a hell? If a person says that belief in hell is easy, they're either lying, or they should be one that goes there. Alright? Right? Because if they're sitting there going, yes, I'm excited about people going to hell. Right? Then they're probably someone that needs to go there. Right? Did someone over here say that, by the way? I just want to know, because I saw some people laugh. Heard people laugh. You're like, yeah, that's an easy belief. That table is all going to the bad place, I have to say right now. Um, no, but seriously, if, if, if something in your heart doesn't go, doesn't have a problem with the idea of hell, then something's probably wrong with you. Seriously. Okay? Now, here's the interesting point. Here's the interesting point. Even Christians, there are many Christians that that say that they think it's just a myth. They think that hell doesn't really exist. There's no place of eternal destruction, eternal torment. That's just fairy tale. Um, There are many Christians who say that. Now, I'll say this. That if, if a Christian says there's no such place as hell, they are calling Jesus a liar. Because Jesus speaks about the concept of hell more than anyone else in the Bible. If you look at his words in the Gospels and beyond, you will see that he speaks about eternal torment, eternal destruction, more than anyone else in Scripture. So we can't say that it doesn't exist. We can't be a Christian and say there's no such thing. So this morning I want to break this into two parts. The first part, we're going to address the idea of God being a loving God, but God also being a God of wrath and anger. 
and how those two things fit together. Then we're going to get into the idea of hell. So we'll do the, the angry and loving God part first. Look at Psalm chapter 145, and we're going to look at verses 17 to 20, and here's what it says. The Lord is righteous in all His ways, and loving toward all He has made. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. I just love how that verse ends like that. Now, uh, your th- third and fourth questions are this. What does this passage say God does for those who seek Him? There are four things God says that He does for those who seek Him. And then secondly, what do you think David means when he says that God is near to all who call on Him? These are some observational type questions, but just think about these for a minute and go ahead and discuss. to help me out here, set out some answers to the front. First question, what does this passage say God does for those who seek Him? What does it say? This should be real simple. This is a simple question. What does it say? What's that? It takes care of them. It takes care of them. What else? What's that? He saves them. He loves them. He fulfills their desires. So if you break this thing down, we said there's four things. It's real simple. He says, it says here in, uh, in verse 17, it says he's near, it says he fulfills, it says he hears, and it says he watches. It does those four things for people who want to follow him. But then at the end it says, but the wicked he will destroy. So you have this contrast, right? You have this contrast of this loving God who cares for, who watches after, who loves, who will respond to us when we call on Him. But then it says at the very end, but the wicked He will destroy. I like reading it that way because it has more effects, right? But you think about it, it looks very strange. You're like, oh, God's this lovey-dovey God. He's this merciful, loving God. Then all of a sudden, bam! It just smacks you right in the face, that verse. Now, when it says that He is near, waiting for people to call on Him, here's what it means. It means there are certain things God always says yes to. If you're someone who goes to God and says, God, I want you in my life. God, I want to pursue you. I want to follow you. The answer to that question is real simple. God says, yes. Yes. The answer to that prayer is always yes. It's never, it's never, okay, pray it again. Just pray it one more time and then I'll do it. That's never what it is. The answer is always yes. If you want to be in a relationship with Him, if you want to... If you, want to, if you want to respond to his pursuit, that's what it is. It says he is near to all who call on him. I would guess that many people in this room have this idea of God of being a distant, detached, uninterested deity in your life. That's how you see God. This verse says you're wrong to think that. This verse says that God's near 
He is near when you call on Him. Now, something else it says, if you look at what it says after it says He is near, what else does it say? It says, to all who call on Him, then what does it say? What does it say? To all who call on Him in truth. Now here's what that means. That means that you can't make up some God in your own mind and pray to that God. That would be called an idol and a false God. But I'll tell you how this works itself out in our lives. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was talking to a, a guy that goes to this church. He's not in the rooms. So he doesn't know I'm talking about him, but I'm not going to tell his name. But uh, he's, he was telling me that um, he was mad at God because God doesn't answer his prayers. And I said, so what have you been praying to God? And he said, well, I've been praying that um, I'd be a better football player so that I could make first string. And he said, I got put on second string. God didn't answer my prayer. And I said, I understand your frustration. I understand your heartache in that. But I think you're praying to the wrong God. I think you have this image of God in your mind that says, I'll pray to you, God, and you'll do whatever I want. You have this this view of God like he's some genie in a bottle. And that's not calling on God in truth. Because nowhere in Scripture do I see God say, Okay, just tell me what you want and I'll do it. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. So I said, said, look, man, maybe you should pray this way. Maybe you should pray like, God, I got put on second string, but God, teach me how, what you were trying to show me in the middle of that. Maybe it's humility. Maybe I'm too prideful. Maybe God's trying to show him something about himself in the midst of God doing that. That's how he should pray to God. So the the answer is, when you call on God in the truth, not when you call on some God that you've made up in your own imagination. Does the God that you pray to, does the God that you call on, does does he fit the picture of the God in Scripture? That's the question. And so the reason why I say all this, because we have a picture of God who is willing to respond, who is willing to come near to us when we call on Him. But there's this other picture of God that destroys the wicked. And the two don't seem to fit on the surface. But here's what we must know. We must know that God is, this verse tells us that God is a God of love, but it also tells us that God is a God of judgment. If you took a survey on the street and you asked someone, okay, what is God like? You might get things like, oh, God is love. That's one of the most popular expressions people use today. God is love. And it's true. But they're missing the point because I think if you ask them what does that mean, they think it means that God should get off my back and let me do whatever I want. That's their vision of God being love. But let me tell you something, that vision of God being love would not be a God of love at all. In fact, that would be a God of hate. I'll say that. That would be a God of hate. Now, let me explain why. Think about a parent disciplining a child. Think about uh, my son, who's three and a half right now. Think about when he's 17 years old, the age of some of you in this room. If he came to me as I'm watching television and said, Dad, we need to talk. And if he said to me something like, Dad, um, I'm doing drugs. I'm partying a lot. Um, I'm messing around with girls. Whatever he might say in that conversation. And what if I just said, Thanks, son. 
Alright. Click. 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 Would that reaction be one that is loving? Would that reaction be one that communicates, wow, I really care about you, son? No! In that moment, I might have some anger. But that anger is going to be because of my love for him. Not in spite of. And so you have to understand this concept, guys, that it's because of God's love for us that sin makes him angry. It's because of God's love for you that he feels wrathful against sin. You see, we can't separate these ideas of God's loving over here and God's wrapping over here. The two are intertwined. Just like when a parent disciplines a child, it's for their best interests. So the two are connected. They're not separate. They don't just coexist. One depends on the other. Now, let me ask you this. Can you imagine if sin didn't make God angry? Can, can you, here we are killing ourselves spiritually and physically, and God does nothing. Can you imagine that kind of God? That would be a God of hate, not a God of love. And so God has to be a God of love and wrath at the same time. Those two ideas don't just coexist, but they depend on each other. I'll give you another example of that. Imagine a judge who is trying a murderer in a courtroom. And the murderer is proven guilty, but the judge says, you're free to go. You've killed someone, I know you're guilty, but you're free to go. Just go. Would that be love? Now, it might feel that way to the criminal, right? The criminal might go, really? That's the most loving thing you could have possibly done. But what about the victim's family? Is it going to feel like love to them? It's going to feel like hate to them. Because here's the point. If God was just this God of love, like the way that the world sees God of love, then his love towards the criminal would be really hate towards the victim's family, right? So you see that God has to carry out his wrath on sin. He has to. That is the most loving thing he could possibly do. His justice demands it. His goodness demands it. So in order for God to be a loving God, He has to also be a God of judgment and wrath. Now, this passage says that God is loving toward all He has made because of His love for His creation. Because of His love for you and me, this means that He has to judge it as well. You can't separate those things. Now, let's talk about hell. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Here's what it says. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. It says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. On the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. So if someone were to say to you, I don't believe in hell. I don't believe in this eternal separation from God. This verse just proves it. This verse proves it. It says that um, he will punish. It says everlasting destruction. It says shut out from the presence of God. We're going to look at what these things mean here in just a minute. The first thing I want you to understand from this passage is this. Here's the point. Hell is real suffering. It is real suffering. Now, I know the question everyone asks is, is there going to be really, is there really going to be fire in hell? 
That's the question everyone wants to know. I know your, your, your heart's just burning with that question right now as we speak. But is, is there really going to be fire in hell? As if, if the answer was no, they'd be like, okay, well, I don't mind going there so much then. Right? That's the question people have. But here's my, here's my take on if there's like real, literal fire in hell or not. I think that when the Bible uses the image of fire, I do think it is symbolic. But hang on. Because it's symbolic does not mean it's like, oh, well, there's no fire in hell. That's going to be good. That's not what I'm saying. I think the symbol means that the reality is going to be worse. Okay? The symbol that God uses is fire. But there are many commentators, many theologians that will say things like, they think God's using that as an image, not to tame hell, not to make hell seem like, oh, it's not that bad then. But really, it's about, no, it's going to be worse than what you can imagine with fire. Because the suffering will not just be physical, but also be emotional, spiritual. On every level of your being, there will be suffering. And so it's probably what you imagine hell to be and, and more, right? Not less, more. So it's a terrifying image. So hell is real suffering. We do know that scripture is clear about that. But, but here's the deal. The image of fire, when you think about fire, if, if we set the building on fire right now, it would do what? It would disintegrate, right? Eventually it would just kind of disintegrate. There would be some things left, but for the most part it would just disintegrate. That's the image of fire that the Bible is talking about, I think. This image of your soul just disintegrates. But, it's, but it somehow remains. It just disintegrates, and you're separate from God. And it's eternal death. It's eternal decomp- decomposition. It's eternal suffering. It's eternal death. That's the image of fire. The second point I want you to get this from this passage is this. Hell is separation from God. It says in the verse that they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from his, the majesty of His power. You know, the worst thing about hell, the worst thing about hell is not going to be just a physical suffering. It's going to be this eternal separation from God. The worst thing about hell is God's absence. It's separation from God. You see, it's not... And here's the picture of hell I don't want you to have. I don't want you to have this picture of hell that just because someone believed the wrong set of truths, the guy just goes, all right, that's it, I'm throwing you to hell. Rah! You know, he's like this angry, wrathful God. I want you to picture hell as this. Hell is separation from God, but every person who is separated from God has chosen that separation. That's the picture of hell. They've chosen it. God gives everyone a chance to be a believer in Him. God, God gives us that. He's revealed Himself in so many ways. But hell, someone said this. Here's a quote I want you to read. Hell is God's way of giving people what they want. C.S. Lewis said that. Hell is God's way of giving people what they ultimately want and desire. So if someone, if someone rejects Christ in this life, then when they die, God gives them what they want. He says, okay, you rejected me here. I'm not going to force myself on you. I'm a good, loving God. I want to give you the free choice. I'm not going to force myself on you, so I'm going to give you what you want, which is separation from me. You've chosen to be separate from me in this life. I'm going to give you the exact thing that you want and desire. Separation from me. 
So in the end, God gives people freedom from himself, which I think is the most fair thing he can possibly do. Hell is separation from God. We're going to look at Romans chapter 1. Uh, we're going to skip around this, this passage a little bit. Romans chapter 1, verses 18, verse 21, and also verses 28 and 29. Here's what it says. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. So this verse is saying that wickedness suppresses the truth, that sin blinds us. This is why when you have a friend who is just off the deep end into sin, this is why it's so hard for them to come back from that. Because they are so blinded by their actions. They've enjoyed aspects of sin so much, it's like their heart becomes callous, their eyes become blinded, and sin suppresses the truth. In verse 28 it says, um, it's basically saying that when someone rejects God, he gives them over to their sin. It says that when someone just outright rejects God, God basically says, okay, you know what, I'm going to give you what what you want. And so he hands them over to a depraved mind and a debased mind. Now, this verse is talking about what happens in this life. It is saying that God gives people over in this life to that kind of thing. He says, okay, you want to walk down that pathway of sin? I will let you pursue that. I'll let you go down that road. I'm going to let your sin reap the natural consequences for what you've chosen. I'm just going to let it play out. I don't have to do anything. I'm just going to let you destroy yourself because that's what you've chosen for yourself. And God does that with some people in this life. He just turns them over to this debased, this depraved mind. Now, if God does that to an extent in this life, then we can only conclude that hell is the final handover. Hell is the final handover. Hell is God's final act of saying, okay, I'm fully giving you over to your evil. I'm fully giving you over to what you want. This path you've chosen for yourself, I'm giving you over to it. Hell's the final handover. Hell is God giving people over to what they've chosen. You know, most of us, uh, I think, picture, we've had this picture of hell in our minds, like it's this place where people are locked up in this chamber, and they're like, I'm sorry, I repent. I'm sorry for everything I did wrong. Like they're just these sorry, repent, repenting people in hell. There is no support in Scripture for that image of people's hearts in hell. In Revelation chapter 16, don't turn there right now, but read it later on tonight. Revelation 16, it talks about these bowls of wrath that God is pouring out on people and the Antichrist. And people have rejected him. And it says that even after all of this wrath and suffering, they still did not repent. So, so hell is God's final handover to people's evil and, and, and so on. They're so blinded they, can't, they still can't even see the truth. And so a couple of last questions we're going to wrap up after that. The last two questions are this. 
I think, the hardest questions of the morning. Does hell seem like a just punishment for someone who wasn't a believer, but still lived a pretty decent life? Why, why not? And then lastly, how difficult is it for you to think that you deserve hell? Do you struggle with that? Go ahead and discuss. I always hate to end discussion before it's time, but I did want to address one question that I'm hearing quite a bit in the room right now. I've heard several people just from an earshot distance say things like, you know, what about someone who doesn't hear about Jesus? What about someone who doesn't ever hear about Christ or hear about the gospel? Um, I'll answer that question quickly, and then we'll close up with a couple of points. Um, the way I've heard that question answered the best is this. Well, here's what I know. I know that God is a good, loving God. And I know that um, that uh, he's revealed himself in countless ways throughout our world. Um, so for, for us to ask the question, okay, what about those who don't hear? First of all, I'll say that you don't know that there is someone out there who hasn't heard. Um, I know it's hard to wrap your mind around, but I think God can reveal himself anywhere, anytime, any place, through any way whatsoever. He's done it throughout history. And so we don't know that there are people out there that haven't heard. But even if there are some that haven't, obviously you guys grew up in the Bible Belt. So you have to understand, we have to at least acknowledge that you guys here in Central Texas have heard the gospel a lot. And I would venture to say that someone who grows up in a Muslim country probably doesn't hear the gospel very often, right? That's just a, that's just a, a hunch. But here's what I'll say. God has still given everyone a critical thinking mind that can weigh things out for themselves. Romans chapter 1 says that no one is without excuse. And so even you guys here in your, in your Christian culture, you guys question Christianity all the time, right? You do. You question it all the time. You're like, is that really true? I think kids in other countries do the exact same thing with their religion. They say, is that really true? Is Hinduism really true? Is Buddhism really true? And so God's given everyone a critical mind to think and explore. And so I think that the the truth is available to everyone in some form. But I also think that, yeah, there could be some people out there that don't have full revelation like you might have. But I trust God because He's good to do what is right in that situation. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if God... I'm just speculating. I don't know if God says, okay, this person responded to the bit of revelation they were given. Therefore, they're covered. I don't know how that works. I don't pretend to know. But if you're someone here this morning that is not believing in God or not believing in Christ because of that question... I would say, well, you have the truth. You can respond to the truth. It's not healthy to speculate on what God does elsewhere. Think about what God is doing in your life and in your heart. So the the, the couple of closing points. Um, The message, I think, for believers this morning is this. Is that we really deserve hell. That's a hard thought. That's a hard belief. We really deserve eternal separation from God because of our sin. And if you're someone that doesn't really believe that about yourself, then I hope this morning has reminded you of of the grace of Christ, and it's reminded you of your total dependence on Christ for everything. Because you cannot earn your way. You can't.
you just can't. I talked with a guy yesterday at the gym. It was just a random conversation. God brought it about. But it was a conversation, very interesting. He's not a Christian, but he was asking me questions about the faith. And he basically said, well, why do I need Christ? Because I'm a good person. I mean, I could look the exact same. My life could look the exact same as someone who is a Christian. So why do I need Christ to make myself good? And I said, well, that's a great question. You know what, though? I said, look, here's the deal, though. The Bible says every single one of us deserves separation from God, deserves hell. And so if you're going to tell me that you don't deserve that and that you're good enough, you're trying to save yourself. That's pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. Those are the sins that Jesus yelled at the most, right? Jesus yelled at the Pharisees more than anybody else. That was their sin. So even that sin of pride and arrogance and, and, and self-righteousness is deserving of eternal separation from God. Because I'm basically saying to God, I don't need you. I can do it on my own. That's an evil, evil thought. That's an evil thought. That's for believers. If you're in the room this morning and you're not a believer yet, you're not following Christ yet, here's what you probably think. You think that God is good and that He would never send you to hell. He would never send you separate separation from Him. You're right about one thing. He is good. But He's also just. And His goodness demands justice. And either Jesus is going to pay for your sins, or you are going to pay for your sins. There's no in-between. And so if you're not a follower of Christ right now, I encourage you, don't be one of the ones that God says, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. You rejected me now, I'm going to give you what you want for all of eternity, which is separation from me. Don't be one of those people. Because don't question God's goodness and His justice. His goodness demands that He also be just. It just does. Now, there's one last question I want to just throw up on the screen. I want to answer it real quickly. You don't have to leave. It's getting late, but this is important, I think. It's important enough. Um, Someone asked me a question this past week. Here's the question. Why would God create a world where people have the choice between good and evil or the choice to reject Him? Why not give them only one choice? Here's how I answer that question. Um, I, I think that God gives us a choice to choose Him or not to choose Him because of one thing, and it's love. Because if you think about it, if there was no choice, there'd be no such thing as love. Think about this. If my wife held a gun to my head and said, Here, love me. Love me. Right? Is that love? No. There's no choice. Like, okay, fine, put the gun down. So if, if, I, if someone forces you to love them, that's not love, right? If there's only one choice, then there can't be love. And so I think God has created a world where there is, there is choice in that. But it's because of something greater, and that is He wants us to choose Him out of love. He wants us to see the love He has for us, and He wants us to choose Him for the same reason. But the bad part about that is that everyone won't choose Him. Some choose to reject Him. And in the end, God gives them what they want.
And that's a sad, sad, terrifying state for someone to be in. That's my prayer for you. I pray that if there's anyone here that wants to talk about this further, please come talk to me afterwards. I'm going to pray for you guys and you guys can head out of here. God, I pray that you would just help us to be, just as Christians, if, if for those of us that are Christians in the room, help us be humbled by this idea of that we, we deserve this thing called hell, separation from you, torment, suffering. Yet, you and your grace and mercy have chosen to give us a way out of that. God, I praise you for that. I also pray for anyone there that may not be a believer. I pray that um, that from as a result of what we read and talked about this morning, they would come to know you. They'd want to pursue you with everything inside of them. They would want to come into a relationship with you and and not reject you in the way that they have in the past years. God, I pray that for them. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a great Halloween. <laughs>